This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Ladies and gentlemen, Billy Hallowell and Chris Field, the Church Boys. From the sublime to the ridiculous, but mostly ridiculous. I hate these guys. Well, 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 Billy, is there anything worse, yet simultaneously anything better than a pregnant woman? (laughs) (laughs) No, because it's amazing. And then at the same time, it's it's really amazing, but also, yes. Well, you could be like in in a peaceful, you know, it's like today I'm typing and I'm home and my wife's a teacher, so she's home and it's like peaceful. The house is peaceful. And all of a sudden you hear, (laughs) you hear, you ruined the thermos from upstairs. And I'm like, you have to, you can't just say, by the way, this is the church boys. Welcome back. Whatever. It's we're here. We're queer. We're not going skiing now. uh, Where was, oh, so the pregnant wife, your wife is. Extremely pregnant. When are you due? Like another five, six weeks? August eighth. Yeah. So right. we're there. All right. So you're about there. You're on the whole, you're on the, the the final stretch, right? Yeah. Down the stretch they come. Anyway, so you 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 texted me something, or you g chatted me, or whatever. Something your wife said. And what was it? I got to find it here because yeah, it, find it, the exact quote because I actually I actually like typed it up as it was happening. Okay. I was gonna tweet it, and I was like, I'm not gonna tweet this because she'll see it. Okay. So this was this was funny. So well, let's talk this... about it here because she'll never hear it. <laughs> <laughs> so I get this text from Billy. As heard at the Hallowells, my wife just screamed, You ruined <laughs> <laughs> You ruined this thermos. Top shelf only. I'm not sh- <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. Top shelf only. Does that mean you can only put top shelf hooch in the thermos. What is the? No, it means it can only go on the top of the rack in the dishwasher. But I put it, I think, on the bottom. Oh no! But well, you'd probably. <laughs> I don't think thermoses are supposed to go in the dishwasher anyway. I don't know. I don't. I didn't even know we owned a thermos. I'm assuming it's Ava. It's our three year old's thermos, but I have no idea. Oh, you probably. You. And I all I said was me. And she was like, "Yes, you." And that was it. I was like, "Okay." <laughs> so you just you just left it at that, huh? We haven't talked about it since. She was happy the last time I saw her when I went up to eat something, and we're good. Yeah, give it six seconds. <laughs> you know, my wife. I tell you, I I loved it when my wife was pregnant with our three kids. That is, uh, it's fun to watch the whole process. My wife is beautiful anyway, and she's extra beautiful when she's pregnant, and. Uh, she never had the morning sickness, that kind of thing. But the hormones go up, and now, you know they're emotional and that sort of thing. So, yeah. calling, yeah, yeah. telling her she looked like a whale probably wasn't the smartest thing. I did. <laughs> you did not tell her that. Well, it wasn't. It was really done the second and third time I told her. But the first time, it was an honest mistake, right? Oh my god. So anyway, but the thing that my wife did, and it's funny because I heard somebody else on a podcast or somewhere say that their wife did this too, was that my wife, and this happened, with, and this is how I knew she was. There's two ways that I knew that I should have been able to figure out she was pregnant before she told me she was pregnant. One of them is she'll go in, I'll go in the kitchen and all the cabinet doors will be open. All of them. <laughs> it's like she was rummaging through and just left all the cabinet doors, all of them. And it happened with all three kids in the first couple months of the pregnancy. And as the pregnancy went along, it got better. 
but at the beginning of all three pregnancies, would she just forget? I guess. I don't know. I don't know if she's rummaging and looking for things. I don't know if it's the nesting thing and putting things away or making sure everything's where it's supposed to be. But it was daily, daily. I would walk into the kitchen and cabinet doors would just be open throughout the kitchen. Well, that's what keeps happening with our refrigerator. Like, I'll go up. Like, I'll look and Andrea's like on the couch watching TV or, <laughs> or taking care of our kid. And the refrigerator door is like wide open. What? And I'm like, I'll close the fridge. And she'll start laughing because she forgets that she left it open. <laughs> Like it's an ongoing problem. It's weird. Why pregnant wives are weird. Pregnant. But women. I, you know, I ruined a thermos. Yeah. So, well, yeah. But at least as, as opposed it. to spoiling all the food in the refrigerator. <laughs> well, priorities, Billy. The other <laughs> thing that happens when my wife has been pregnant is my dog has this really weird sense. My dog loves our kid and loves my wife. I didn't even know you had a dog. Oh, she's. I am of the five people living in my house. I rank fifth as far as my dog goes, and she loves me. My dog does, but she loves the kids. But she especially loves mommy, right? So all three times when JC is pregnant, the dog gets weird. She'll go and insist on sleeping next to JC. Now, the dog doesn't sleep on our bed, but she has her own dog bed at the foot of our bed, down on the floor at the foot of our bed. But the second JC's pregnant, all three times, the dog starts laying right next to her on the bed. Can't and will, and will not leave her alone. Follows her all over the house, <laughs> everywhere. She insists on being by JC's side the entire time she's pregnant. From from funny. from the moment of conception, I'm assuming because the dog started being weird weeks before we knew we were pregnant with number three. That's so crazy. It is weird. So I'm anyway. gonna put you on the spot. Are the fields done? Is there gonna be a fourth field ever? Uh, according to my wife, there there shan't be a a fourth. Well, so, there you go. Yeah, You're but done we're, then. we're but we're very pro adoption. I mean, we've talked about the idea of adopting one day, but you know our. Our baby, our last one, she's only, you know, 15 months old. So right, exactly. We've got time, but um, but the well, wife... It's kind of crazy. It's crazy. I don't know. You know, and you never know how many kids you're going to have. Like, That's I right. love that this turned into parenting. I know. The, like, we, honestly, no. they should just pick us no, up, Parenting this Magazine. Isn't, no, no, no. This isn't parenting. This is knocking up. We haven't talked anything about parenting. <laughs> <laughs> knocking uh, up is the easy part and the fun part. The parenting is the hard work. I, how are we transitioning this? Because this is my favorite part. I always love transitions, and I love talking about <laughs> of course, them because it makes of course it more you love, awkward. Of course you love transitions. Of course you do. That's the kind of guy you are, Caitlin. Now, well, I got Oh, well, you went there. I know. You went there. So uh, I was going to answer. Oh, so you asked if we're going to have more babies, and people ask my wife that all the time because all three of our kids are beautiful. I mean, all kids. Kids are beautiful, period. And I just, I'm partial, but we have people come, you make such beautiful babies. You guys are just going to have more, and my wife's, her her standard line is not with this body. <laughs> so <laughs> apparently we're you don't done. Find it creepy when people are like, you make beautiful babies. Yeah, but but the nice thing is, I found that most of them are open to purchasing some of mine, and I've got three. I think I could make some good money off this. Oh boy, it's so it's sort of like the whole I'm gonna love on you. That like honestly, too many Christians use the line. I think it's creepy. I'm just gonna put it out there. <laughs> I, I just want you to love on me. Okay, well, this Shut is up. awkward. Yeah, um, a, leave me alone. Bro, why is that? You, hello, uh, fellow Christians. Why are you using love on me? Why? <laughs> Anybody? Creepy. Can somebody explain it? Who came up with it? Who one day was like, I'm going to take the word love and put it in a really suggestive and awkward sentence. And yeah, everyone's really going to use it. It's really weird. It's really it's disturbing. It's like it's like those. It's, 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 it sounds like a word that a creepy 55-year-old man came up with. Right. Right? Like a, a white, pasty white, evangelical um, lay, in the min 1980s. Lay, lay minister in the 1980s. Yes, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I'm yeah. going to love on you. 
All right, because because you're you're worried about the transition. <laughs> Wait, this <laughs> again. It's like one of those pleasing your wife moments, right? From last week. <laughs> I couldn't. I, can't. I, I, can't. I can't stop laughing. <laughs> okay, so because you're worried about the transition, how about this magic thing? We'll just do this. Okay, that gets us into the next. That topic. actually sounds like a mix between something lovely and like a, a horror movie. It's, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like the Rusty Spoons cartoons. Have you seen those Rusty Spoons cartoons? Yes. Rusty Spoons. <laughs> okay, so if that doesn't that one doesn't work, let's try this one. Does that work? Okay, that's and, more and like Glenda kind of, the Good Witch. I'm I'm in for that one. Just kind of flips us right into the next subject. Here we go. Guess what we're gonna talk about next. <laughs> Billy. So gay marriage. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Honestly, we should just rename the show the Gay Marriage Hour. Oh, I swear. I'm so tired of talking about this. In fact, when I was putting some notes together before we were setting up today, I thought, can we is there any way we can just not talk about the gay marriage thing? And I'm and like, I, no. There's and not. I'm, we, and I imagine there's some way to do it, but it would mostly require us unplugging our microphones. But I <laughs> I you can't get away from this. And so we need to talk about it, but one of the most disturbing things has been there's been excuse me there's been a lot of invective out there. Is that right? a hiccup or a burp? Let's, a, I want to just get it out there. That was a burp. Both okay. of those were. You're welcome, America. So, uh, well, it's because I'm drinking this. So, anyway, uh, one of the disturbing trends has been there's been a couple of them. One is the name calling coming from. And, and frankly, the, the right can of, often be mean and nasty, too, in the name-calling. And I'm not talking about the oversensitive Billy, you know, Jared types who are like, Matt Walsh is being mean. I'm talking about like actual... Oh, you mean the ones calling for Christian dialogue? Yes, you're right. You're right. right. I'm, <laughs> I'm, talking about the actual, I'm, I'm talking about the actual name-callers. So there are those kinds of people yeah, on the right, no, absolutely. people who use words we shouldn't be using. And not because I believe in limiting speech, but just because it's rude. Well, no, just no, the, let me just wait, wait, wait. Go ahead. Just because if you're going to walk around and I, I actually become enraged by this, like I, I get enraged by a lot of things. Clearly, um, this show has exposed. But when you're going to walk around and say, I'm a Christian and I love the Bible and I love Jesus. And then you're calling people names that are not reflective of that. You've now yeah. undone no, everything I, you've said you believe in. I and agree. you are. I, and I feel the same way on Twitter and Facebook and other things and in just general conversations. Now, you know that I'm not one who swears. But people who go around calling names and saying words like fat, and we're going to bleep this out, but people go around saying, calling people names like, you know, fat and, and that sort of thing, or, right. or saying, and, and I just, I don't have any, don't call yourself, I don't care if you're, if you're not calling yourself a Christian, then I'm not horribly offended by those words because I don't have an expectation from you. And right. words don't hurt my feelings. Where I get offended, and it's not a personal offense as far as, oh, I can't believe I heard that word, but it's like, you call yourself to, you claim yourself to be one thing. You claim to be a Christian. You claim to believe this, and then you talk like that? I have no use for it. And it's it's the, the worst possible billboard in the world. Because, I mean, honestly, gays and lesbians have a case to make that they have been mistreated by a lot of Christians, right? And I'll, And... I would argue the vast majority right. of Christians would never mistreat anybody, but you know you can beat a dead horse with this. They, the fact is, a lot of awful things have happened in the name of Christianity that don't really uh, mesh with Christianity or Jesus's message. And so, but we also see this on the other side now, and I, and I think that's sort of the paradigm shift is that now this is moving on, and we're having a situation where the people of faith are the ones who are in this awkward, defensive position. Yeah. yeah. 
So, so there's been two disturbing trends. One has been the language surrounding all this, the name calling, especially. Now, of course, we're sensitive to it because we're on the right, but especially from the folks on the left. And we're going to get into a story that you put up today that is just awful. Um, it's just demeaning and and anyway. But the other area is the idea that we have to start accepting all of this and the and the and the fact that. There are churches and people in general, just Americans in general, who are saying that all of this is okay. Not simply believing that gay marriage is okay. Listen, you can believe that or not believe that. It doesn't make it true or not true. It just means you believe it or you don't believe it. But the idea that people should be forced into things. So I, I, I'm disturbed by churches deciding, you know what, we're going to go ahead and change our standards simply because the court said that this is now legal. And right. then I'm also concerned about the views of the people who say you got to remove tax exempt status and all this, this movement that's going on now. So what was the story? You sent me a story about a Christian denomination, or you wrote a story about a Christian denomination that's embracing gay marriage. Tell me, I remember you talk, you talked about on the editorial meeting this morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, so the Episcopal church, you know, and, and back in 2003, they allowed gay bishops and gay faith leaders. Now they've officially changed the marriage right under the Episcopal church to allow for same sex couples. There's a couple of really weird things about the story. The biggest is they've removed man and woman from the marriage canon and they've replaced it with, um, you know, couple. So basically it's, you know, individuals because they want it to be open for gays and lesbians. Now, but here's the I think this piece is really interesting of the story. And it this is a denomination, by the way, it's a mainline denomination, obviously. The mainline churches are dying. When you look at the yeah. Pew poll, and this yeah. was totally buried in the headlines. Pew didn't bury it, but everyone else did. Sure. Um, we did not, however, was that when you look at who's declined the most, because there was there was the whole thing we talked about, Christianity's declining. It's the mainline churches. They're the number one decline. Evangelicals have increased. They've gone up. Um, and, and so without going too deeply into that, the point is this is going to be a bigger issue for, for them because what they've done is they've said, okay, we're going to embrace same-sex marriage, but you don't have to as a priest. You're not going to be forced in the Episcopal Church to you know, preside over a gay wedding. Right. But here's the, here's the other piece. If you're a bishop and they control, obviously, bigger areas and larger geographical areas, bishops can ban gay marriage in their jurisdiction, which means that if you're a priest who wants to do it and your bishop says no, then you can't. So you're going to have a lot of internal battles yeah. that are now raging within the church, even more than there already are. And and listen, I I don't think you should be hmm, say this correctly. <clears throat> let me say this: regardless of whether someone thinks that gay marriage is Christian or not, or homosexuality is Christian or not, you know where I stand on that. Churches, denominations get to decide what their rules are for their churches, right? right? And I will disagree. I disagree with. The Episcopal Church's decision on this. However, I also believe it's their decision to make. Okay, all right. I I really got to think, and and you were you alluded to this with the Pew study. I got to think that this is an this is an attempt to expand their tithing base, don't you think? Well, here's with the, you know with what? The dwindling, I mean, with the dwindling numbers, they got to have more givers, and the only way for this group this church to get more givers is to appeal to a larger group by they think by lowering their standards but if you've continued and now i think you're right that must be what they're thinking but if you've continued to decline as you've become more progressive then it's clearly not working right so you're losing people because i mean look yeah. look there are polls and i don't have them in front of me right now but showing that with pcusa another mainline denomination that just recently endorsed gay marriage 
they are de declining so fast. And, you know, there are some pastors, I think 30 percent of them who don't even believe that Jesus is God's son and don't right. even believe that Jesus. I don't want I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think it was around 30 percent. Right. That's a huge problem. You have a crisis in your denomination when nobody's problem. a Christian in it or, or one, one third aren't Christians in inside of it. Well, and, and I think that you are right in that. The more that they, the more progressive they go, the lower the standards get. The more they, they just shoot themselves in the foot. That's going to bring down their their tithing base. I just don't think they see it that way. No, obviously. I not. think that, I think that they think this is the this is we got to find a way to get more butts in the pews and more wallets open, right? Or they believe it, or they believe all of these policies are the right way to go, which which I think for a lot of conservative Christians would be the message of, okay, well, they've definitely drifted from the gospel because they're right. clearly enacting things that are not. Yeah. And by the way, I do have to say to the credit of some of these pastors, there were people who spoke up. This was their, I forget the name of it, but their annual, I think it was their 78th annual convention this week where okay. they, where they make these rules and regulations. And people stood up and said, look, uh, you know, priests and bishops, this is not the way we should go. This is not right. But I mean, it was overwhelming. I, it was like 180 to 23 or something, the vote. Right. Well, it's interesting. They not only changed the like the text of their canon, the canon eighteen. Not only they changed like the text; they got rid of the the physical and spiritual union of a man and a woman. They changed it to just whatever. They also changed the name of the canon. Did you notice that? They also removed holy matrimony. Yeah. Did so you the see name that? of the, the yeah it was canon eighteen, and the name of the canon is of the solemniz solemnization of holy matrimony. They crossed that out and replaced it with canon eighteen. Of the celebration and blessing of marriage, so they Holy got rid of the solemn change throughout, though. But they got yeah, but they got it. I mean, even in the title, even in the title, they 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 expose what they're doing. They get rid of solemnization and holy out of the title of the canon. They get rid of it because they know it's not solemn and it's not holy when you take it this route. Well, I'm sure they would say if we asked them, well, you know, we felt that we wanted to give churches an option. So we had to keep it very general because like, what I've heard is some of there are there are gay and lesbian marriage rights as well. And I don't know how true that is, but that may be even a little bit different that that are available for you. So I agree. I think there is their assumption is let's keep it as general as possible. That way we can anybody can use this. But, you know, I'm going to want I'm going to be looking at this to see. Do people flee? Is this like PCUSA where tons of people and churches are fleeing? I would imagine. Yes. So, so here's where though, and I want I want to get into this other story that you did um, this week, <clears throat> and this is where I think that the Episcopal Church is getting their idea that being more progressive and lowering standards will increase their tithing base. Because there's another story that came out about uh, the number of Americans or the share of Americans that think that religious institutions, the churches, and clergy should be forced to perform gay marriage. Explain that to us. So, okay, and and we went. I went with a headline on this that talked about how shocking I thought this number was. Some people might disagree. I, I think it's pretty shocking. When you, when I'm looking at a poll and, and they've asked a question, which I think is a pretty radical response if you say yes, and the question is, should pastors and churches be forced to marry um, gays and lesbians. Right. That to me is an extreme. If you say yes, I mean, I, I would expect to see two percent of the population say yes. Nineteen percent of the American public in this particular poll that Barna conducted said yes that they that they would want to mandate that. That proportion went up to twenty four percent when you looked at just people forty and under. So you're talking about one in five Americans and one in four Americans under the age of forty. That's substantial to me. Wow. And that and that. 
that they believe not only in gay marriage, that gay marriage is okay, but that the churches should be forced to do it. Right. Right. That's why it's that's why to me now and I love Barna and I'm not criticizing them when they wrote it up. They said, you know, the vast majority of Christians would never want it, which is true, would never want to force or Americans rather would never want to force a church to do that. That is true. But then they sort of said only 19 percent. I forget the exact wording. And when I read that, I was like, wait a minute, only that's like one in four. That's like one in five people. Right. That's substantial. Um, A fifth of the people. Right. Right. (laughs) So, you know, I think. But but also we talk about who the people who are the nuns, right? The N O N E S, not the N U S. Right. The people who aren't associated with the faith. This is a wake up call for Christians because you know you probably want to reach those people now. Yeah. Most of them are an atheist, and they're clearly confused. They comprise twenty two percent of the population, so it's not far behind. Yeah. It's probably these people. These are probably the same people who are saying this. I, I agree. So let's take a break, and I want to get back into this discussion that we're having about. Uh, you know the, the 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 ideas that people have changed. The fact that churches have are changing. Some churches are changing their doctrine, their canons, and that sort of thing. But also the 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 crap that's being said about people uh, who believe in traditional marriage, but especially about you know, well, it's a story about Clarence Thomas and and a celebrity. Oh my, who uh, who said some pretty nasty things about uh, Clarence Thomas. So we're gonna get into that right after this break. We will be right back. So Chris was telling you guys about a little bit about this story. George Takai. Takai. I actually love his name. I've Mr. always loved George Takai's Mr. name. Mr. Sulu, for those of you who might not remember yes. his name. Star Trek, which is, you know, as we've we've talked about in past episodes, Chris's favorite show. Right. Wait, 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 um, wait, 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 wait. Half of the people on the Church Boys, half of us <laughs> have never been to a Star Trek convention. Well, tell us about the convention. Chris. I've never been to one. All right, I went to one. <laughs> the point is that he was actually. I wish he would have been there because, and especially now, I would love to talk with him about this because I. He, here is the thing. We just talked about this at the beginning of the show. You might have very strong views, either traditional or maybe supportive of, of, of same-sex marriage, but how what you do with those views and how you talk about other people and how you address them i think says a lot about you right. and we all make mistakes and we all get angry but i think what we saw come from george takai in talking about justice clarence thomas and his dissent was really disturbing and and hateful and nasty and i mean do you want to just play it yeah, do you want to play the clip let's play it and then we'll react to it okay so this is he's he's it's on from fox 10 in phoenix uh, he and his uh, husband, whatever his name is, Frank or George or Phil or what is his name? I don't even know, uh, are going on a little vacation. Anyway, they're being asked about the Supreme Court ruling. And in an outtake that Fox 10 of Phoenix posted on YouTube but didn't have as part of their original report is is this crapola from uh, Mr. Sulu. He is a clown in blackface sitting on the Supreme Court. He gets me that angry. I'm sure. He doesn't belong there. And for, for, for him to say slaves had dignity, I mean, doesn't he know that slaves were in chain, that they were whipped on the back? If he saw the movie 12 Years as a Slave, you know, they were raped, and he says they had no, they had a dignity in, as slaves, or my parents lost everything that they worked for in the middle of their lives, in their 30s. His business, my father's business, our home, our, our, our freedom, 
And we're supposed to call that dignified, at, m marching out of our homes at gunpoint? I mean, this man does not belong in the Supreme Court. He is an embarrassment. He is a disgrace to America. I'll say it on camera. <laughs> there you go. So, so there's the, the brilliant Mr. Sulu. Now, people need to understand what he's talking about. And what he's talking about is he's responding to Justice Clarence Thomas's dissent in the Obergefell decision, right? And what Clarence Thomas said was that that the majority, he criticized the majority for being so concerned about the dignity of people. And, and Thomas's point is, the government doesn't give you dignity. God does. So you can't, as a court, assign dignity to people. You don't get to assign dignity, dignity to me. The executive branch doesn't get to this, assign dignity to me. And the legislative branch doesn't get to this, assign di dignity to me. His point is, it doesn't matter if you're a slave or if you're in an internment camp or any of this. <clears throat> what, what other people define as your dignity doesn't make you give you dignity. The state can tell you that your property is a slave, but God says that you are a human being. And that was Clarence Thomas's point. And George Takai is either so mentally incompetent that he couldn't understand it, or he's willfully misunderstanding and twisting what Thomas said. Well, I think that he's blinded like many other people who, um, are, you know, you look at an issue. This is clearly personal to him for two reasons. A, he's gay. Um, and B, his family went through an internment camp, right? And so because that the, me the message dealt with that in the dissent, I think he's so over-emotional that he's not even able to process what was said. But I do think that, I mean, to call somebody blackface, I mean— how I don't care if you feel like you are a member of a minority and you can say that you can't that shouldn't be said. No. And and listen, I'm all for the First Amendment, but I think if anybody else said that right now, I, I can't imagine the fallout. It's disgusting. It's wrong. He owes an apology. I don't care if he thinks he's a disgrace, but but it is, as you said, I mean, it, it's almost you don't have to agree with what. He's saying what, what you know, Clarence Thomas is saying about human dignity and, and God. You don't even have to believe in God. But to, to twist it, misunderstand it, and then call somebody a racial name because of it right. and say, I'm so bold, I'm going to do this on camera. Right. I just I, – I lost a lot of – you know, and I'm, I mean I'm not a huge George Takavia, but I lost a lot of respect for him with that. And I think really the sad part is I bet you people will be applauding it. I mean that really is yeah. – Truly the sad part. He's he's not going to apologize. I don't want him to apologize. If he doesn't if he doesn't mean it when he apologizes, I don't want him to apologize. No one's going to make him apologize. Don't, don't, he's not a Republican or a conservative. But don't, Who's going to make him apologize? Don't apologize when you're not sorry. Okay. Listen, I but he's not. Gonna, I agree. Go, I agree. And he you he, you're right. He's not only not going to apologize. He's not only going to pay no price for it. Nobody's going to get on his case about it. Not only is he not going to have any repercussions whatsoever, none. There will be no repercussions for him. Not only will he not pay a price, he's going to get high fives from everybody on the left for it. All the people who are in his camp are going to give him high fives because we're all jerks who are just going to say, hey, you know what? High five, high five. You called him, you know, blackface on the Supreme Court. It's even better than calling him an Uncle Tom. These people are loathsome loathsome people well you know i think that this is again it's an example of emotions taking over it's an example of exactly how you don't dialogue on an issue like this how much more 
And I want to make this point. How much more of an impact can somebody like George Takai make if they have a respectful and a peaceful and a calm reaction? If they say, my family was in an internment camp. I'm gay. I didn't agree with this. But you know what? I'm going to have a reasoned, calm, collected response. That, to me, is more powerful than calling somebody blackface. Yeah. Oh, I, I totally agree. I totally, totally agree. So anyway, so uh, let me do something here. So there's another little transition. Did that one work? Maybe we should try this one. Oh, that one's weird. That one's too weird. That that's actually that's um, that is really scary. <laughs> oh, that one's a little weird too. I just oh, that's like I stumbled into traffic. <laughs> Let's see that one. No, that one's weird. Oh, I'm playing two at once now. This needed a little transition music since we don't have a transition. Uh, coming up in the next break. We have a really cool interview for you uh, with a guy named uh, Ken. You're like obsessed. You know what? It's a guy named Ken Mansfield, and he loves the He's lo- awesome. He loves the Lord, uh, unlike uh, 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 Mr. Hallowell. Uh, Ken Mansfield, he was the um, U.S. manager for uh, Apple Records, which was the Beatles label. He was also their U.K.-U.S. liaison and he worked with a whole bunch of other uh, big artists. Anyway, he has a new book out about um, people of faith who are in, what's it called? Between uh, What's it called? Oh, you remember? It's called Rock in a Heart Place. Rock in a Heart Place. Anyway, it's the stories of people, everybody from the Pointer Sisters to Head, who was with Corn. Uh, some some faith stories of people who were in big bands, who were in, in important, you know, culturally important, culturally significant musical groups and acts almost almost as culturally significant as the church boys <laughs> almost <laughs> just a, just a sconce less uh <laughs> anyway what was i saying anyway so he's gonna he's gonna regale us with some stories about the beatles and some other uh, musical acts he's been a part of and <laughs> some of the things that he did and um Sorry. i was as, as and if you if you thought i sound like i was ready to pick out the drapes with joe bonzo last week i'm just laughing because it's like you know, we might as well just become a music show where you talk to all of these is, people who have it. done great things in music because you're just I obsessed. I would do it. I would. Do I want it. everybody to just pay attention to this interview. There is a point where I check out. I'm not going to lie. Oh, yes. I actually check out and I'm eating things and I'm like, I mean, I'm gone. I'm gone. And and like, I don't in even fact, know where I went. In fact, last week on the show when we're talking about the setup for Joe, talking about the Bonzel interview, and then we, we talk about, you know, next week we got coming, the, the Mansfield interview. You say, and this is a quote, every time I hear Beatles, like the word Beatles, every time I hear Beatles, my eyes glaze over. I have you, never people been. Shouldn't lie. I people have, shouldn't lie. I have never been more embarrassed to be you associated you with you when you to said get something people, like, like to get people to listen. That was like one of those things no, you say. No, you meant it because you are a an uncultured. Right, I'm not gonna lie. You are an uncultured boob and a buffoon. I'm not gonna lie. And you're the a, Beatles don't excite me. But you don't have to enjoy their music, but like what they meant for the culture. You don't have do any. We really, wait, do we really want to have that conversation? Yes. This you have. Do what you think is they wrong had a positive or a negative impact? I'm interested. I think they I don't had know. a positive impact. It, What's what's wrong with you? I just feel like they've destroyed America. Okay, I'm just here's, saying here's things the again to make here's, here's you know, a, I want to be I want to be a mediaite headline here. You believe that the Beatles destroyed America? No, I'm making this up, but I'm I'm, ah! I'm making it up. <laughs> the Beatles destroyed America. All right, so you know what? We're gonna take a break, and we will be uh, we'll be back with the with the. 
with the Ken Mansfield interview. If I can get to my my soundboard's not working. Just a second. I'm such a dope. All right, we'll be right back. The Church Boys. The Church Boys. Man, I hate those guys. Oh, thank you, Satan, our announcer. Uh, um, so we're coming back here now, and we're talking. We talked with uh, Ken Mansfield uh, earlier this week, and we had a great interview with him, and had a chance to talk to him about his new book, uh, "Rock in a Heart Place," and about people who have come to faith in both various acts and um, musical acts. And uh, Billy's eyes glazed over and didn't want. He didn't want to have to hear anything that had to do with um, being a sensible, cultured American. So he, you'll, you'll notice that Billy gets really quiet for a while during the interview, but um, it's a fantastic one and it's intriguing. So uh, we'll go ahead and, and we'll play that now. I uh, hope you enjoy it. Action. Can you please? <laughs> here you go. It's Billy Hollowell here with Chris Field and the Church Boys, and we have a special guest for you. It is Ken Mansfield. Now, Ken was the U.S. manager of the Beatles' Apple Records. And, Ken, I mean, I feel like you've been, when you look through your resume, I feel like you've been in charge or the head of almost every company in music at some point. <laughs> yeah, I did pass through a couple of them for a while. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's amazing. You have you have an amazing, amazing resume and career, and you've worked with so many people. Um, big, I mean, iconic names in the music industry. Obviously, the Beatles, among many others. And I have so many things I want to ask you about. I know you have a book out, um, Rock in a Heart Place, which I love. I think that's a, I think it's a great title. And I guess just to, to dive right in, to jump right in, you've been in music for a long time. I mean, you've seen a lot of things happen, a lot of acts rise. You've seen people fall. Um, what, and this is sort of a loaded question, so I'm just going to go right into it. What, what are some of the pitfalls of fame that you have seen throughout your career? I guess we'll start at a negative front and then we'll get to some more positive, yeah. but I want to know what have you seen happen, you know, in music that has sort of stuck with you that was negative in some way? Well, one of the things is we start believing our own press releases <laughs> and working from that point uh, is nobody. And I, I have to go back kind of the first part of your comment about being in the business a long time. And back when uh, the business was very new in a way, in terms of the amount of fame that an artist could have and just how incredible this whole thing could become because there was nothing ever on the level of the Beatles and that kind of thing before they happened. I mean, even Elvis didn't quite, you know, hit the international thing like they did. So all of a sudden, these young artists and kids that came out of the country and backwoods and simple beginnings are thrust into a world that none of us had an idea that this existed. And we weren't prepared. There was nobody to educate us. It's like the old story about there's no training to be a father. You just, you have to jump in, you know, and away right. you go. Yeah. And uh, it was something, and especially if you look at the time during this, uh, uh, during this particular period, we didn't know about drugs. We didn't know about free sex. We didn't know about extravagant money spending. And this was all thrust upon everybody, and it just uh, wiped people out. There was no way to know how to handle it. And I think the thing that came in that really messed it up, when the other things were enough problem, was the drugs. Mm. And uh, we were told, uh, yeah, well, you know, 
this isn't addictive. Cocaine isn't addictive, and it really helps you get through things when you're tired. And marijuana, you know, it's just uh, it helps you relax and helps you be conversational and chilled back. And if you do the psychedelics, you actually, uh, you know, get closer to God because you go out, you know, you go up into space and you get close. It was just all this stuff, yeah. and we believed it. And at that time, we didn't have the people who eventually start dropping away, like Joplin and Hendrix, and, and uh, a lot of people started, uh, their lives started falling apart, and they either started dying or becoming just so totally messed up that they couldn't function after that. Hmm. So in our defense, uh, we didn't know what we were up against, and we weren't trained for it, and we were young. And um, I have a great heart for all of us that were in the business and the ones that especially got messed up, I have a great respect for those that made it through and, you know, have really done well with their lives. And the people in the book would represent those, the people that made it through and came out the other side, you know, an hour out, you know, speaking for the Lord and are a good witness. Right. So we're looking, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at the, at the table of contents of your book here, the, or the list of artists yeah. that are in it and things. And, are these all people that you worked with, or you happen to know their stories? Or, or, tell me how you came up with this list of people, and and what are some of the stories that you know that you really think will capture people's imaginations? Well, I did not want to write this book to start with. Um, I had just written an, another book. Uh, I had a very serious bout of cancer, and I found when I had the, the publisher asked me to write that book, to go back and relive some things was very hard. Marshall Terrell, who is the uh, uh, a co-author on this book had come to me and had done some work on my Beatles stuff and it hurt me tell some of these stories and he started about three years ago asking me to write this book and I said Marshall I don't want to do it I don't want to, I don't want to go back and relive that uh, you're asking me to get together a dozen or so artists and organize these people into a straight line you know right. uh, some semblance of uh, of, uh, togetherness here because you know artists are pretty crazy people and you one of them it can be enough but you put together 12 or 16 of them <laughs> you got a handful yeah <laughs> and uh, he just kept kept asking me to do it and kept asking me to do it and then finally uh he said let's do me a favor uh why don't you pick a couple of your close friends and just tell them what we're doing tell me it's an idea for a book sit down and do a chapter with a couple of guys and just see what you think. And then he said, I'll leave it up to you after that. Well, I did. And I sat down and I got about two artists into this thing. And all of a sudden the book uh, took over. It just it just took a, got away from me. It just was something that had its own life at that point on. And the idea was, here was a formula. A uh, young fellow or girl comes out of, uh, you know, standard beginnings, works hard because becomes famous, uh, eventually their life of decadence falls apart, they bottom out, and then they find the Lord, and then they walk away with the Holy Ghost singing Kumbaya, you know, it's kind of like this pattern. Well, that didn't happen, because as I got into it, each artist had such a special, different thing. The basic structure was kind of there, but um, each artist's story was so unique that I found out, now I'm being ministered to. I'm, I'm, my job is to be a minister through my books, to bring right. people into them, have them see, you know, get a message and walk away better people. But I found that these artists, each one started ministering to me through the stories. And uh, I started with some people I knew, 
uh, really knew well, and then I then some people that I had worked with, and then they'd say, hey, you know, you got to call such and such. He'd be perfect for this book, and I would call them, and we would hit it off, and then they were in the book. So the whole thing just kind of had a natural, uh, you know, expansion into the group of artists that are in there. Mm. The thing about the book is we have people far back as the crickets all the way back, or the Ronettes with Nedra Ross, all the way up to uh, Brian Head Wells. So right. it covers like every genre and every era and every kind of possible way a person can go through something like super fame and, and become a Christian wow. at the end. So wow. it just, it kind of ends up having it all. You so, know? And a couple of the people in the book I never met are like really dear friends. made it really neat. So l- let me ask you something. Um, when yeah. when Marshall asked you to say, you know what, just do a couple of a couple of chapters, yeah. do a couple of interviews. Was there one of those uh, early interviews that was really the specific one that maybe turned your turned your mind around on this? Was there one of those early stories that said, you know what, this is something I just need to do? Um, I can't quite say that. I would say as I got into it, there were interviews that just totally made me realize I was doing the right thing. It was just the comfort that I found working with with artists and how they opened up in ways I never expected them to and how uh, willing they were to bear their souls, mm. to tell embarrassing things about their lives. There's nothing salacious in here. It's just that they really told the raw truth about what they went through and confessed to their own foibles and things. Yeah. Uh, Let me... Wh- what would you yeah. say... It, out of all of the stories <clears throat> that that you put together, what was the what's the one that stands out to you the most? The one that you just it's sort of the most, not necessarily shocking, but the one that just makes yeah. you sort of take the biggest step back. Well, as a writer, I've never cried before when I'm writing a book, <laughs> yeah. and I had the case of Ruth Pointer with the Pointer Sisters, where I'm actually crying while uh, I'm writing one section of her book because it was so poignant. And uh, if you could just picture this, if you were familiar with the Pointer Sisters at all, they were the most flamboyant, exciting group of young ladies during one of the most exciting eras of our business. I mean, they just sparkled. They dazzled. They were just in the... uh, It was just amazing. And these girls on stage were just mind blowers. There's a story in there in the later years where one of them is dying and two of the sisters are there at her bedside during her final moments, and they crawl in bed with her. Mm. And now here's this picture of these three ladies who had been on the stage in front of thousands are now in bed together. And as she is dying, the other two are singing in each of her ears their, their hit records. And something about that <laughs> mm. was just so touching. And there are stories like that in here. Um, another woman that touched me in that way, like in a really uh, a special way, is Richie Foray from the Buffalo Springfield and Poco, mm. and how open he was about the pain he went through with the mistakes he made, and just the way he described them brought all kinds of emotions back to me, and uh, I just I, wa- I walked away from that story just kind of like in a way forever changed. And here he is. He's been a pastor now for like the past 20 years, you know, oh, so yeah. he really laid it out there. So he I, really laid it out there. And now, I want to get back to, and you've got a huge music experience. I could talk to you all day, Ken, about your, I mean, I'm just, 
I just, I, I am, I am in awe just thinking about the people that you got. But I, I, as much as I want to hear other people's stories, what's your story? How did you come to Christ? What was, what was a pivot point for you? What's your redemption story? What's your, what's your turnaround? Well, uh, I came roaring out of, uh, Chris and I were talking earlier about our background in the Northwest, and I came roaring out of, uh, basically Indian reservation lands in, in uh, northern Idaho, the Nespers tribe. Right. And uh, to come out of there with not an idea that something like this could happen, end up on the roof in London with the Beatles or, you know, uh, all the people I worked with, it was just kind of mind-boggling. And in all honesty, I thought it was just because I was such a hotshot and I was so smart and I was so talented. The reason... That was the reason why I was so successful. And now I know, as I look back, that God had just been using this all along. He was just weaving this beautiful tapestry so that uh, so that I would have a ministry. And in street terms, guys, I've got cred because I was with the Beatles. Right. And people would say, wow, if, if he, he was with the Beatles and he says Jesus is Lord, you know, well, he must know what he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah. Uh, that is the reason I think that I was with all these people. But um, it was the kind of thing to where, and you've always heard that, that what's on your heart or where your really you know, heart is, you will end up there one day. Right. And music was always the biggest part of me, even as a kid up in country and, and coming out of Idaho. I just, uh, music was always a thing that I never dreamed I would make a nickel at music or be involved in it on any level. I go to college. Uh, this was during the folk craze with the Kingston Trio and Peter, Paul, and Mary, and yeah. Limelighters, and, and all this stuff was happening. And in our fraternity, every fraternity kind of had their own little, little folk group, and ours turned out to be really good. And so the next thing we know, we're playing. We quit playing for pizza and beer, and we started playing clubs, and then pretty soon we're on tour with some pretty famous people. And, and I met a lot of people in the industry. And then one day, a guy from Capitol Records uh, and I had kept running into each other on the road, and he was uh, the four freshmen's manager, which is the group I loved at the time, and the head of artist relations for Capital. And he said, did you ever think about going to work for a record company? Here you are, you, now you have a degree, and uh, you know a lot about the business from touring. He said, did you ever think about it? And I went, in my dreams, give me a break. Yeah. He said, would you mind if I put you up? He said, we have a job opening at Capital. Would you mind if I put your name in for it? Wow. Well, he did, and I got the job, and there was 40 applicants. It was the cream puff job in the industry to be the district promotion manager for the West Coast for Capitol Records. We were the cream puff label, and this is the cream puff job because my job description was hang out at the radio station, promote records, go to the concerts, hang out with the artists, throw cocktail parties. Uh, you know, that was my life. And all of a sudden now, uh, especially like in the case of the Beatles, I say, uh, I come to Capitol Records on January, and by August I'm working with the Beatles. And in the meantime, there's all these other great acts with Glenn Campbell and Lou Rawls and uh, Nancy Wilson and all the famous acts of the, of the day, you know, are just my, my pals now. It was, it was an amazing thing. I mean, I was in awe of just what the, how did this happen to me? So, hold my story. <laughs> yes. 
There well, was one thing in your bio that, and what actually it wasn't in your bio, it was in some interviews that I saw that you had done in the past, and it was about coming to a point in your life where you sort of lost everything, where you, yeah. you know, or yeah. I get, I mean, you you went from having big houses and everything to sort of losing it all. Can you tell me yeah. a little bit about that? I just. I, I think a lot of people go through that and it's a wake up call for them. So I'm just curious what that was like and how you, how you sort of climbed out of that. Well, what had happened is I was working for the, you know, president of different companies and vice president and all that. And I thought I'm such a hotshot and I'm making all this money for these corporations. Why don't I set up my own corporation and make the big bucks for myself? And so I started producing and these people are people that nobody hardly knows about these days, but they were the big people today, like, uh, David Cassidy and yeah. Waylon Jennings and even people like Don Ho, who was legendary, sure. and Nick Gilder, the guy, the not hard child in the city guy, and uh, oh, I forget who all, but anyway, Andy Williams, etc. And uh, I uh, really started doing well. I had a 10 acres on the ocean summer home up in Northern California and um, traveling with all the rich and famous and all that, but I started having more fun than I did work. And the drugs were there, and pretty soon your buddies are people that you get high with. Uh, my accountant got high, my attorney got high, everybody got high. I needed, you know, because that's how we could talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And you start being a little less creative and a little bit more of a party time. And little by little, I quit getting the hit records, I quit getting the big accounts. Uh, all of a sudden, I've got all this outlay going with my company, and uh, the big the big bucks are going out, and the big bucks quit coming in. Pretty soon, by me not paying attention, my company went under, took me under, and I started losing everything. Uh-huh. And I did. I lost everything. And uh, I'm in L.A. at the time. Uh, just can't seem to get things going again. You know what was amazing about this? Because of my career... I had mentored a lot of people. I had hired a lot of people, gave them their start. Now, here I am. I'm broke. And I go back to companies. And some of these people that I hired were now presidents of these companies and major executives. And the doors were closed. It was so strange. You know, uh, I couldn't get a job in the mailrooms of the companies that I used to run. It was, And I thought, this is weird. Well, what it was now, looking back... It was God had closed the doors because he had another idea for me. So I go back to Nashville, Tennessee, because I'd had all that excess with Waylon and the, and the outlaws for five years down there. And I uh, thought I'll just start over. First thing I run into is a young lady uh, who made a project of bringing me to the Lord. I had my guru. I was a stoner. I was broke. I had a bad reputation. And there's a sweet girl who had set herself aside for the Lord for a year. Wow. And something weird is the Lord brought us together. She didn't want someone like me, and I was not looking for a relationship, but we just couldn't. I don't know. There's something about it. Mm. And we start dating, and um, we have this argument. Every time we're together, she said, Jesus is the way. And I say, well, you know, I have this guru, and he's incredible. And he is a way, and Jesus is a way. I agree with you. She said, no, he's the way. We thought about this all the time. I even told her I'd change gurus for her. Just, you know, let's meet in the middle, but she would not move on that. So the relationship had deepened, and uh, one night uh, she said, I need to talk to you. I said, what about? And she said, well, 
here's the thing. She's I see where we're headed. I see how our emotions are with, with each other. And I cannot become an unequally yoked. She said, so I have to choose between you and Jesus. And I've made my choice, and it's Jesus. Now, I was knocked over because she had been taking me to all the Christian rock concerts and all the churches where the great musicians were and just constantly witnessing to me that way. Hmm. But she was talking the talk then, but when she walked out the walk, I thought, I can't believe that somebody would want something, believe in something so much they're willing to give up something that's really important to them on an earthly level. And I said, I want to want something that that badly. Hmm. I want to want something that much. I'm willing to give up things for it. And that was the, her conversion, her, her way that she brought me to the Lord. Wow. And the neat thing about it is that uh, then I ended up marrying her. <laughs> <laughs> and so the first person I see every morning when I wake up is the person that saved my life, wow. as far as I'm concerned. You that's, know? that's amazing. And that was the beginning of, uh, of me. Then I went on to start producing. I produced the uh, Gaither Vocal Band's Homecoming album, which won the right. dub and a Grammy. Well, I knew... And was the, was the beginning of that whole giant, you know, major stadium right major auditorium now, uh, move there i knew you had you had uh produced for the for the for gaither for the vocal band and i was wondering do you have any dirt you can give on bill gaither that that we could put out there <laughs> oh yeah man i got a, <laughs> a lot of dirt on that guy that guy you know wow <laughs> um no i don't, guess i don't so i you you mentioned in your in your and now i I'm getting a little bit not off track, but because this is the stuff that I, I I love the ministry side, but I also love the history side, the pop culture history side right. of this, and your involvement in 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 the lives of people who changed the course of this this country in a lot of in a lot of ways, musically and culturally. Wow. Um, so you mentioned in your early, you said you called it the cream puff job or whatever, and you're hanging out at, at radio stations and that sort of thing. When we read, when I read accounts of, of, of the history of, of music, especially in the rock and roll world, there was a whole, they, they claim there's a whole lot of payola going on, you know, a lot of bags of yeah. cash and that kind of thing. Is that, was that as prevalent as a lot of people are saying, or a lot of historians say it was? Yeah, yes. In fact, I've never seen that where I felt they were overplaying this. This was a reality. Hmm. And it really changed the business and came to the point where actually they had to write laws and then it became a serious, you know, a serious, serious thing. But I was involved in setting up some record labels that, uh, especially in the R&B field, where the guy told me, he said, okay, uh, here we go. We're going to go on the road for a few months, and I'm going to teach you how to carry a bag, which meant the um, payola bag. And some real dark backroom things and scary things and all that, but that was the way people were getting their records played. And... um, Yes, it was very real, and it was very big time, and some you know, very mafiosa type stuff involved in that. Well, I can I can understand. Yeah, go ahead. I can understand the 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 crime syndicate um, uh, threat. Yeah. How, how how it could be involved in the in the mob. I mean, that's very much a a mob type of thing to do. But overall, and again, I didn't live through this era, but I'm I'm curious. What was wrong with payola? What was wrong with paying a DJ, here's a thousand bucks to play this record, you know, three times in the next, you know, two hours or, or whatever the system was? What was it you guys were getting around or what was the industry getting around with the payola? I'd never understood why it was such a huge deal to begin with. Yeah, that's actually a better question than I thought at first. Um, 
in those days, here's the thing that happened in the record business. When I first went in the business, uh, you made a good record. The regular stations played a lot of records, and pretty soon people started responding to records, and then records would become a hit. Then the competition of the Top 40 format came out, and one of the ways the stations got more listeners was paying, playing more hits all the time. Right. And the big thing was we play the top hits uh, so many times an hour. You hear this many top hits each hour right. on our station well, that was, and the other stations. Let me ask you, and that, they, that, that, was, yeah. that was the arguments against playing, you know, putting Hey Jude out there, right? Yeah, well, those that type was exactly of, those type the, of records. the thing we were up, up against. And what it did is they were even speeding up the records a little wow. bit. Then they were dropping the length of the playlist to where most of the stations were getting down. They only played 20 different records, hit records, plus one or two uh, special records that they were you know, saying could be hits. So it was impossible to get your records played. So if you just went out there with the mirror of the record, you were in trouble. You had to come with more than that. You had to come with a trip to Las Vegas. You had to come with uh, special things, you know, just all this stuff, and hard cold, hard gas, cash in a lot of cases. Hey, Jude, special story. Now, if you can picture this, yeah. I'm in London. We're setting up Apple Records. The most important thing is the release of our first records, and we decide to release four records as our first four records, and, of course, the leader of the pack was going to be the new Beatle record. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting in the room. Uh, we had these new offices on uh, Savile Row, and we didn't have the furniture in yet. So here we are. I'm sitting with the Beatles. We're on the floor. Paul had set up this giant sound system in one of the what was going to be one of the offices, and we're playing the records we're talking about releasing. They had decided to do Hey Jude and Revolution. Right. But the problem with Hey Jude is Paul was concerned, you know, man, they were limiting in the radio station to America were limiting to two and a half minutes of record. Here we got a seven plus minute record. And Paul was concerned that the stations wouldn't play his record. Now, in those days, the Beatles could have belched on a record and everybody would have played it. But Paul wanted to do it by the numbers. He was now a businessman. He wanted to adhere to what the circumstances were in America. And he was just afraid that their first record would be a bomb because the radio station couldn't play it. Mm. That's amazing. So... Well, it is to think that he would be insecure about a record, that record. I mean, it became, his, it became his signature record. Their biggest record. Yeah. What I did was I said, look, I will fly back to America, and I will hopscotch my way back to L.A., and I will stop in some of the major markets where the, the music directors are known for picking the hits. If you'll trust me with this acetate, uh, I will not let it on my possession. And I went to, like, Philadelphia to WFIL, which is the number one station on the eastern seaboard then. And I went down to Miami to WQAM, then over to St. Louis. And I went to, like, four stations, wending my way back to L.A. And every disc jockey, every pro- program director, music director just fell on the floor. Hmm. I get back to L.A., I call Paul, and I said, we can go with this. Well, you know what happened next. It was the biggest record, I yeah. think. Or at least the record they're probably the most known for. Anyway. Yeah, wow. But, but that was just kind of the nature of the business. I just still floors me that they were worried that they might not have a hit record. <laughs> that's uh, what what a, what a, that's. I, I you mentioned before um, before we got started that you were you were not only manager for Apple Records, 
but you also were the Beatles uh, liaison, is that right? They were personal liaison between the UK and the United States. So what did that entail? Well, what, that was in, what was your job there? Well, that was, in, that was an informal job, but I was the only young guy they knew in the record business. In those days, here's the thing, America was a whole ball of wax. They had to establish the record company in America. They had to be successful in America with our complete roster, because without America, the whole thing just wasn't going to fly, you know. And so the pressure was on America. Well, when I I had worked with them on two of their tours, and when I worked with them, because they were so famous, the only people they ever saw from record companies were like the Lords of EMI, a Lord of EMI or the Chairman of the Board of Capital Industry, all gray-haired guys in suits and. And all of a sudden, uh, they're working with this young guy that's got to get, you know, I have the Cadillac convertible, I have the house up in the Hollywood Hills with the pool, I'm suntanned, you know, and and they were just, they were as fascinated with me as I was with them, because they grew up with California, kind of like, wow, California. Mm -hmm. And so here I was now, a young executive that they could relate to, and we, we became not only we only did the business together that we were to do on the tour, but we also developed a friendship. So when it came time to set up Apple Records, they sent for me. Anyway, uh, then I'm called upstairs by the chairman of the board of Capital Industries and said, uh, we just got a call from the Beatles. They're setting up a new label, and they want you to come over because they want you to run a form in America. And now at that point in time, the Beatles were 50% of capital industry's income. Now, if you own a major corporation, you do not want to have one product or one, you know, one thing be that big a chunk of your business because if something goes wrong there, you're under. You know, so the Beatles were like the most important thing to Capital Records. So my marching orders were: they've asked for you, Ken. Uh, I want you to know right now, you don't have to verify your expense accounts. You don't have to ask permission to be someplace. You don't have to qualify anything you do with the Beatles. Mm. You have this one instruction, keep it together when it comes to the Beatles. As I start to walk out the door, because I go, oh, my gosh. He said, (laughs) by the way, he said, I want to put a finer point on that, Ken. When it comes to the Beatles, there is no margin for error. Mm. Whoa, okay, now here I've got this cool job but i couldn't a hundred percent enjoy it and we did we got along great i also had to keep the business thing together so i couldn't just you know totally just (laughs) rock out i had to really you know keep things together too because if i did something wrong with one of them i could lose them all and it would just be a mess so and it was i had four bosses think about that four equal bosses yeah (laughs) Well, do you ever still do you, do you ever talk <laughs> with Paul McCartney or Ringo Starr? Do you still have any relationship with them? I did up until um, well, Ringo and I kind of you know, uh, of course John passed away and then George passed away and, and then, but Ringo and I were always together for years and years and years. He moved to L.A. We were a part of a small uh, clique of friends and uh, uh, Paul just kind of we just drifted apart, not in a bad way. We just fell out of touch with each other but up until a few years ago Ringo and I spent a lot of time together and now you know I went into the ministry and he's still out there rocking and we've just drifted apart yeah nothing negative right so we still in fact we still have we still share the same attorney (laughs) well that's important (laughs) yeah (laughs) you keep your story straight right (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Ringo. Ringo was as as a kid growing up. My parents are huge Beatles fans, and I've got a bunch of their original vinyl and things, and just love it and listen to it whenever yeah. I can. And and uh, Ringo was always my favorite. Not they always yeah. people said he was the most talented. You know, there were there were there were rumors that he was the most talented, and but he was also the kind of this the the odd duck. It seemed like, but he was always kind of my favorite. I, I think it's interesting that he was he was the one you were closest with. You know, he was the most accessible. Okay. accessible of the, of the group. Um, George and I would have had the deepest relationship because it was something very personal we had because uh, George is just so beautiful. And, and he and I both are kind of like kind of gentle guys, I guess. We're kind of quiet guys. We're not real, you know, in your face. But Ringo was just easy. I mm. mean, Ringo was just common. Uh, he was fun. He had an incredible sense of humor. He loved L.A. And... Uh, we just, you know, we were part of a just a small group of friends, Harry Nielsen and Ringo and and a few other people, and that was us in L.A. Wow. So, so I, I got to ask you one one more Beatles question, and then we're gonna let you go. Yeah. You have been so generous with your time, but I, yeah. I I gotta know, and this is questions that you can only ask of people who who knew the situation. And if you if you don't right. want to answer this question, I get it. But what were your thoughts on Yoko Ono? <laughs> well. Uh, when Yoko was in the room, you always knew she was there. <laughs> um, uh, Yoko was actually really good to, to me because in my books over the years, she approved everything and let me uh, use pictures and stuff that you know I had to go through her to get it. But um, the problem with Yoko was when I first started working with him, I was working with four guys, and then on one day I'm working with five people. Mm. And um, she did really take over John in a very powerful way. And you knew that when you said something to John, that it went back home with Yoko, it went through her thought process, and then came back through John to you. Uh, it wasn't really John speaking to you anymore. It was more, it felt like it was more like Yoko, you know. Mm. And um, she got him pretty riled up in some areas. I, he was very cynical. Uh, I don't know. It was kind of crazy. It just kind of ruined everything in a way. That's a shame. And people people say, well, Yoko broke up the Beatles. And I say, you're giving her too much credit. There was too many things going on that yeah. broke them up, but Yoko didn't help. Right. You know? Okay. That's but, uh, I, I, you, you have lived a life that I don't, know, <laughs> I don't want to say that I would love to have lived, but I, that it's just fascinating to me. And I would love to, we would love to have you back. You know, as I told you before well, we started, Billy is an uncultured boob, so all of this is just going over his head. <laughs> but uh, by the way, you know, all this melts down into the book because these stories like this, these are people that have you know incredible fame, mm -hmm. and these stories are fascinating from these people. Mark Farner, Grand Funk Railroad. Yeah, that's a real muscle story. Brian Ed Welsh will blow your head off. I can't. I can't know. wait to. I can't wait to read this book. It just you. Yeah. You have piqued my interest, and I can't wait to get into it. I was just going to say, we, love, we loved having you on. We definitely want to have you back and appreciate you taking the time to educate me. I'm learning a lot. You know, Chris, is, uh, Chris has been around a little bit longer, and so I'm, I'm going to dive into this book. I'm excited. I'm still in, I, can, okay. I, I can still say I'm in my 30s, so it's, Billy doesn't get All right. to, Billy can't make me older yeah, I, than I am. I love to make Chris age jokes, but yeah, you are in your 30s, though. <laughs> but no, I love this. I think it's great, and I think people need to hear these stories of – you know, really well-known people, people who are iconic and, and people who have been out there who have gone through and had these moments of redemption. I think it's really important. So I appreciate you writing the book. 
Thank you for having me, and uh, let's do. We'll talk again sometime. Great, thanks, Ken. Uh, let me let me pray for you guys that you don't oh. fight when I hang up. Okay, you be right. nice to each other. All right. <laughs> okay. Talk to you later, guys. All right. Thanks. Bye. 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 And now back to the church boys. They're a real pain in my. Billy, as we're playing that interview, his eyes glazed over again. Um, again. Well, you know what? It's a good thing that you've got all these contacts because I have no friends and no contacts and nobody likes to talk to me. So at least you're able to set these things up. Despite the he loved you- talking to you. He lo- and I thought he was great. And, and I really did think he was great. I, know, I just I like know. joking about my unculturedness. <laughs> so do I, actually. Uh, so this weekend, <laughs> 4th of July weekend, big plans. Of course, we're releasing this after the 4th of July. So what did you do this weekend? <laughs> <laughs> well, I am going. It's today is you. Thursday, and I am leaving Friday, right. the day of the fourth of July. Oh wait, that's the third actually. Yeah, so you're we're both screwed up on our timing here. So yeah, I'm talking about something. You know what? You're, and you're glitching and everything. Yeah, something's totally. wrong. Something's wrong with your internet connection. I think because you got all grainy. Am I grainy on your end? Like your audio and your I visual and everything's glitching. Right. Yeah, it's a little bit grainy. Okay, so we're gonna go ahead, we're gonna go ahead and end this stellar broadcast because <laughs> we have no clue what we're doing. We were gonna get into a discussion about what's going on, on the Fourth of July, but realized that we're we haven't done it yet. But by the time this airs, it will have already happened, and our internet is crapping out on us apparently on both ends of the of the country. So because <laughs> it's just that's just how it goes. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Happy Fourth of I July. Hope. Happy Hanukkah. Uh, Billy, any words of wisdom Happy for the Kwanzaa, people? Read your Bibles. Merry Christmas. And the Declaration of Independence and the Blaze. We'll talk to you later. <laughs> bye bye. Bye.